would like to thank everyone who has helped us to finally get justice for Lee and the overwhelming support that we have received. This has been the toughest times of our lives. No one should have to go through what we've been through as a family. The accused found guilty of the murder of a British soldier in London and water in short supply in Cambodia. But the reality is that even water is quite challenging in Cambodia. Only 50% of the households actually have access. This is The World with Tim Stackpole. Hello and welcome to the very final edition of this program, a program that launched late in October 2011 with a view to highlighting the work of various humanitarian agencies around the world. Over the past two years, the scope of the program has widened and contributions by Al Jazeera, Australian Independent Radio News, Feature Story News, NATO TV, UN Radio, NTN24, the National Institutes of Health, and the International Monetary Fund and others made the program into a most diverse and extensive 27 minutes and 30 seconds each week. This being the final program, there was a temptation to make the program a retrospective view on the past two years, but after some discussion, we agreed to remain true to our current charter and present the weekly stories that affect the people of this planet, either on a mass or individual scale. And so we shall do so for this final program as well. So first to the United Nations, which condemned the attack on its compound in South Sudan, in which two peacekeepers and more than 20 civilians were killed. It is the latest wave of violence in the country that is battling ethnic killings following a failed coup. At least 500 people have been killed in the capital, Jupa, and tens of thousands are sheltering in UN compounds. Nick Harper reports from the UN in New York. As the violence in South Sudan continues to escalate, the United Nations is trying to deal with the rapidly deteriorating situation. Friday was meant to be the start of the Security Council Christmas holiday, with no meeting scheduled to take place. But special closed-door consultations were convened to discuss what they're calling the humanitarian crisis. Speaking to reporters after the meeting, the president of the Security Council, France's ambassador Gerard Orud, expressed the council's grave concern. You had the political crisis and you have a powder keg, which is the ethnic uh, uh, question. So the political crisis could lead to a, a general a political a civil war if we don't solve very quickly the political crisis. Up to 40,000 civilians have fled the fighting flocking to UN bases around the country to seek shelter. But the peacekeepers' mandate to protect them has been severely tested. More details emerged on Friday about the attack on the UN compound in Akabo, where 36 people of the Dinka ethnicity were sheltering. Just 43 UN peacekeepers and half a dozen policemen tried to stop an armed mob of 2,000. During the attack, two Indian peacekeepers were killed, another injured and the exact number of the Dinka civilians who were murdered when the mob overran the compound is still unclear, as Ambassador Arod explained. We believe that at least 20 of them uh, were killed. It could be the 36 of them, actually. It's really simply because we don't have all the, all the information, and uh, we are organising the evacuation now of the peacekeepers from, from Akobo. Another compound in UI has now been emptied. 40 peacekeepers helicoptered out. Meanwhile, the situation is still extremely tense at a number of other compounds throughout the country. Ambassador Arod said that it was very unstable at one in Bor, where 14,000 people are staying, with fighting breaking out around the compound. 
At one base in Juba, where 10,000 people have gathered, the UN's resources are being stretched. The mission's representative, Toby Lanza, is there. I've just walked through one of these bases. I've listened to women and children, to a lot of men who are concerned about their own safety, and that's why they've come to the United Nations. And what we as a peacekeeping mission, what we as a UN team can do for people is first and foremost help them with their protection, help them to be able to seek refuge in a safe place. Um, and in addition to that, we, we will be providing water. There's concern the ethnic violence may be heading the way of the 1994 Rwandan genocide. But UN spokesperson Farhan Haq said he didn't think so. The difference between this and Rwanda is that the whole world is watching right now, today. No one can say that we haven't been warned. No one can say that we at the United Nations also have not been speaking out right at the start. But what's needed is for enough pressure from parties in South Sudan, but also from all concerned countries in the region and elsewhere, to get the leaders to, to, to halt the fighting. Deputy Secretary General Jan Eliasson has also urged political dialogue to take place as soon as possible. Violence is spreading and could spread even further. Uh, we need all South Sudanese leaders and political personalities now to immediately appeal to calm and call on their supporters to suspend hostilities. The UN mission in South Sudan numbers nearly 7,000 peacekeepers and police, but only around 4,000 are armed. At this stage, the UN Security Council is ruling out sending more peacekeepers. The hope is the fighting will stop and the world's youngest country will find a political solution to the potential civil war. This is Nick Harper in New York for The World. Two men have been found guilty of murdering a British soldier on a London street in May. Lee Rigby was run over by a car and then hacked at with a meat cleaver by a 29-year-old and a 22-year-old. The pair were found not guilty of attempting to murder a police officer at the scene. Lee Rigby's family broke down in tears in court as the verdicts were read out. Ollie Barrett reports from London. Lee Rigby's family's reaction to the verdicts was delivered outside court on their behalf by Detective Inspector Pete Sparks. We would like to thank everyone who has helped us to finally get justice for Lee and the overwhelming support that we have received. This has been the toughest times of our lives. No one should have to go through what we've been through as a family. We are satisfied that justice has been done. But unfortunately, no amount of justice will bring Lee back. These people have taken him away from us forever. But his memory lives on in all of us, and we will never forget him. We are very proud of Lee, who served his country. And we will now focus on building a future for his son, Jack, making him as proud of Lee as we all are. Lee Rigby's family have been in regular attendance at the Old Bailey in London, but often left the courtroom as the jury was shown graphic pictures of the last moments of the soldier's life. He was run over in a car by Michael Adebolajo and Michael Adebowale, who then hacked at him with a knife and a meat cleaver before police arrived and shot them. These converts to Islam had been on the radar of security services, though. Michael Adabalajo was detained in Kenya in 2010 on suspicion of seeking to train with an al-Qaeda-linked group in Somalia. He'd appeared in court there. These people, they are mistreating us and we are innocent, believe me. And that 2010 court appearance is among the things, leaving Metropolitan Police Assistant Commissioner Cressida Dick admitting opportunities may have been missed. There may well be, with the benefit of hindsight... Uh, things that not just the police, not just the agencies, 
I'm sure all sorts of people are scratching their heads and saying, how could I have stopped this? People in schools, in institutions, people in the family. Um, so there, there may be something which, when we look back, looks like a, a missed opportunity to do more. Both men had denied the charges, with Michael Adebolajo telling the court it was not murder because he was a soldier of Allah, describing the killing as a military operation. That was dismissed as a defence by the judge and the prosecution told the court the two men set out to cause carnage. Prime Minister David Cameron says the extremist threat remains. I think it also shows that we have to redouble our efforts to confront the poisonous narrative of extremism and violence that lay behind this and make sure that we do everything to, to beat it in our country. Lee Rigby's brutal murder on a London street in broad daylight shocked the city and beyond. And so on the occasion of the guilty verdicts, Londoners have been calling local radio station LBC with their reactions. I'm a Muslim and um, I'm a father of a six-month-old and mm. I, was, I was deeply saddened and upset um, at uh, what happened to, the, to Lee Rigby. What this man did was, was totally un-Islamic. Um, there's, there's no uh, Islamic value which um, even suggests that you can do something like that. Universities are a key problem, not so much the mosques. Mosques do not allow this kind of thing. They chuck these people out. But universities, when young, impressionable people go there and they met with these hotheads who go around accusing them of not being good Muslims and they sort of like um, railroad them into this kind of extreme thinking. Afghanistan veteran Lee Rigby was 25 when he was murdered by Michael Adebolajo and Michael Adebowale. They will be sentenced in January. This is Ollie Barrett in London for The World. European Union officials have been confident about the Eurozone's economic recovery for several months now, but recently disappointing figures on the health of the French and Italian economies, as well as manufacturing data, paint more of a mixed picture. EU leaders gathered for talks in Brussels on Thursday, and our Europe correspondent Sandra Gatman has an update. It's holiday season in much of Europe, but the Eurozone is lacking real cheer, according to mixed figures from the single currency bloc, which reveal economic recovery is still somewhat frosty. The 17-member monetary union took until the second quarter of this year to emerge from a long recession, which officials in Brussels were quick to celebrate as the start of an end to the three-year crisis. In November, manufacturing picked up slightly, but subsequent data saw the bloc's overall industrial output drop between September to October. It's of particular concern to countries like Ireland, which has just left an EU bailout program. Jolt Darvas is an economist at the think tank Bruegel. Ireland, it is mostly the pharmaceutical industry, which accounts for about 10% of GDP. So it is the pharmaceutical sector that drives GDP growth why all other sectors of the economy are not really growing. Greece, Cyprus and Portugal will remain on an EU lifeline for now, subsidized largely by a still thriving German economy. Meanwhile, the euro area's second and third largest economies, France and Italy, are struggling to stimulate growth after emerging from recession, exacerbated by their efforts to reduce their large deficits in order to reach agreed EU targets. With unemployment rates already above 20% in the entire Eurozone, the necessary spending cuts are proving a very tough sell politically. 
Speaking to shoppers at the Christmas market in the Belgian capital of Brussels, it was evident that not many here share the view that Europe is out of the thick of it just yet. The people um, don't like to spend much money when uh, they're going to drink something at a cafe or to going to eat at a restaurant. They are very uh, careful. I think um, we're still in the middle of the crisis. And um, I think uh, in a couple of months we will see more unemployment because we, we uh, in the news they talk all the time about that the companies are uh, restructuring. There's hope that an eventual banking union will put an end to taxpayer-funded bank bailouts. EU countries have already agreed on the setup of a single supervisor to monitor the health of European banks. But they're at huge odds over the design of a single resolution authority and its access to a proposed 60 billion euro fund to dissolve bad banks. Germany is particularly unhappy with the idea that its taxpayers would bear the brunt of those costs. Nikos Chrysopoulos is a member of the Crisis Observatory who says the banking union needs to be a priority if Europe wants market confidence to return. The legislative completion of the banking union is the only way to restore the integrity of the, of the single market in the eurozone, which is falling apart. For now, though, the eurozone is far from the edge of financial collapse. Greece and Cyprus remain in the club, as does Slovenia, despite earlier fears that its weak banks would need EU aid. The single currency is even welcoming Latvia as a new member on January 1st. All signs of stability in the eurozone, which could be considered a good thing if it weren't for the painfully slow pace of economic growth that lies ahead. This is Sandra Gatman in Brussels reporting for the world. Russia's government has cut the price of gas supplies and given a loan to Ukraine after a meeting between the Ukrainian president and his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin. The meeting was an attempt by the embattled Ukraine president to gain financial support for Ukraine's struggling economy amid huge protests after his government suddenly backed away from a long-anticipated trade and reform agreement with the European Union last month. Tom Barton reports from Moscow. Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych has managed to come away from this meeting with Vladimir Putin with a natural gas discount from over $400 per thousand cubic metres down to 268 and a loan of $15 billion to help prop up Ukraine's struggling economy. The two presidents reportedly did not discuss Ukraine joining a Moscow-dominated customs union. However, for the huge crowds of protesters in Ukraine and observers in the European Union, this is Russia's government rewarding Yanukovych for spurning a trade and reform deal with the EU that was years in the making. The turn back to Ukraine's former Soviet masters is infuriating the opposition, who accuse Yanukovych of selling Ukraine to Moscow and demand Russia back off and leave them to integrate further with Europe. Russia's government has pressured Ukraine and stopped some exports from the country to try and force it away from the EU. What some see as a tug of war over Ukraine has seen mistakes all round, says Andrei Kortunov from Russia's Council on International Affairs. No matter what decision is made, no matter what side is chosen, I think uh, the uh, negative side effects uh, of any decision will be significant. Yanukovych maintains that Ukraine needs trade with Russia and needs financial help to plug an estimated $17 billion hole in next year's budget. 
EU representatives have been saying the door to an association agreement is still open, but condemn what they see as Russian government bullying of a former part of the Soviet Union. Whoever was in charge, says Andrei Kutunov, they wouldn't find the choice before them appealing. Ukraine simply cannot make a choice right now. It is really connected to Russia and depends on Russia in very many ways, not just in terms of the economic interdependence, but socially and you know, culturally. At the same time, uh, definitely uh, Ukraine uh, cannot uh, uh, simply you know, cancel its uh, European integration strategy. Protests have continued round the clock for three weeks now, with huge crowds and increasingly popular leaders such as ex-boxer Vitaly Klitschko and ex-minister Arseny Yatsenyuk demanding Yanukovych's resignation. He and his party are seen as closely linked to the huge levels of corruption in Ukraine. Though some Ukrainians in the east of the country have linguistic ties to Russia, many in the centre and west of Ukraine see future integration with the EU as a route to greater prosperity and less corruption. But this agreement is being hailed as a victory by Russian politicians who make no secret of the fact that they still see Ukraine as part of Russia's sphere of influence. This is Tom Barton in Moscow for The World. This is The World with Tim Stackpool. In Uganda, questions are being raised about the Nairobi declaration between the Democratic Republic of Congo government and the M23 rebels. The signing of a document confirming the dissolution of the rebel group is being greeted with some scepticism and warnings that it is not a permanent solution. Isabel Nakiria reports. The signing of a deal in Nairobi between the DRC government and the M23 rebels is being described as a temporary solution to the Congo crisis. Conflict analyst Phil Clark says the DRC issue is not one that can be solved overnight. It's not as though that the conflict has been brought to an end. It's still a very, very volatile situation. And so I think what has to happen now is a, is a peace process that deals with that reality, uh, that provides a deal uh, that, that is uh, reasonable to the rebels, and that also dedicates Congo to, to some sort of internal political reform. Over 35,000 rebel groups still roam the jungles of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Peace talks have been mediated by Kampala over many months. And Phil Clark, an expert in conflict, warns peace with the M23 would be just one part of the problem solved. But I think Congo now has to be serious about the fact that much of the conflict has also been caused by its own army, uh, which has been a predator on its own population. Uh, and it's also uh, been, a, a, I guess, a symptom of a very dysfunctional state. The document signed dissolves the M23 as an armed group. The M23 was defeated late October by DRC forces backed by by the UN Brigade. M23 Commander Sultan Makenga and over 1,500 fighters surrendered to authorities in Uganda. An attempt by Uganda to have the two sides sign a deal flopped last month after the government said it would not sign a deal with the defeated force. It's hoped this agreement moves the region closer to an end to decades of violence. Isabel Nakiria in Kampala. This is The World with Tim Stackpool. Nearly half of all Indonesians, that's more than 100 million people, have no access to clean water. For those fortunate enough to have it on tap, it is not fit to drink. But their water bills are still some of the highest in Asia. For the rest, buying bottles is a major expense. Al Jazeera's Step Vaisen reports from Jakarta. Something many take for granted. But for Muhayati, it's not a matter of just turning on the tap. This mother of five struggles every day to find drinking water. 
And after buying six gallons, she barely has enough for her daily consumption. We pay around 30, 40 cents for three gallons. This means we pay around one quarter of our income to water. And this is only when water supply is good. Otherwise, it is even more expensive. We have to queue the whole day and we are not even sure we'll get it. It's an essential part of daily life and it's important for good health. But for many Indonesians, water is a luxury item. To pay a huge part of the daily income to buy it, and even then, it's too dirty to drink straight away. This is the source of Mohayati's water and millions of others in Jakarta. After being processed by water companies, it reaches only 40% of households in the capital, and it's still undrinkable. The government and water companies admit that aging equipment and facilities, polluted rivers and mismanagement are the main reasons why many Indonesians have no access to drinking water. If you talk about mismanagement, I don't want to comment. But I do want to say that we have lived up to our targets. We have doubled our customers in 15 years, but the government has not given us enough usable water sources. So even Indonesians who have access to tap water complain about its quality. They say it's often unusable for cooking food or washing clothes, let alone for drinking. And despite paying one of the highest water tariffs in Asia, most people are forced to buy bottled water. The government admits something as crucial as water was never a priority. If you ask me why it has not been fixed, the water system should have been fixed 30 years ago because it was already old then. The problem is classic, it comes down to a lack of budget allocation. The government aims to supply clean drinking water to all Indonesians by 2020. This still doesn't mean it can be consumed straight from the tap. But at least people are hopeful they won't have to depend on sources like dirty rivers anymore. Stepfasen, Al Jazeera, Jakarta. Improving hygiene through the use of latrines and hand washing with soap and water, protecting water sources from contamination, they remain key challenges for Cambodia. According to the United Nations Children's Agency UNICEF, less than one in three Cambodians have access to latrines and hand washing facilities, one of the lowest rates in Southeast Asia. Nearly 70% of Cambodia's rural population, that's roughly 6.4 million people, still practice going to the toilet in the open, and that remains their principal sanitation option. Cambodia is among the countries that remain off track to meet the Millennium Development Goal on sanitation as set by the UN. To find out more about this, Patrick Maguire spoke with Belinda Abraham. She's the chief of UNICEF's Water, Sanitation and Hygiene Section in Cambodia. There has been a trend towards increasing water supply and sanitation is not on track. But the reality is that even water is quite challenging in Cambodia. Only 50% of the households actually have access. However, what we've seen with sanitation in the last few years, because of the efforts and realization that it wasn't on track previously, so I would say the last four years, we've actually seen sanitation in terms of percentages increasing much more than water has. But the main um, bottlenecks the country is facing, I think their number 
Firstly, I think the required government investment, uh, the required investment in the sector is still quite low. And when I'm talking about investment, I'm talking about the technologies that are required. Cambodia is quite challenged with a high water table, seasonal flooding, the cost of facilities are quite high. There's also a basic aspiration. People aspire for, we would say, high-end, I almost call them Cadillac facilities. So these are mostly beyond the reach of people. So there's a technological, there's an affordability, these are sort of the major bottlenecks and challenges. Overall, people don't view sanitation as really a problem. They don't see it as a route to many of the other health and economic problems. But increasingly, uh, various studies are starting to draw the link between malnutrition and water and sanitation, and economic development and water and sanitation. Underlining all of this is the general behavior change or belief that sanitation doesn't link to other economic good or health goods, so people don't practice. They feel that, it's, that their investment isn't required. Are there some cultural or uh, barriers to access to sanitation and hygiene here in Cambodia? I wouldn't say there's so much cultural, but what I would say there's more social barriers. Open defecation, you know, using the fields or the rice patties or is, is considered normal. It's a social norm. And so therefore people do it without thinking, I mean, perhaps of the links between if I do it here, how does that affect my drinking water sources or the drinking water sources for people downstream? And so generally this social norm of openly defecating is quite a big challenge. So, And uh, how would you say UNICEF is responding to these challenges. One approach we've been using is something called community-led total sanitation. It tries to use either guilt, shame, disgust, fear as a means to try to get people to sort of think that, is my practice, how is it affecting the community at large? Patrick Magua with that story. And finally, one-time British singer, now Australian citizen Leo Sayer, has assembled an all-star Australian band to protest against fracking which is the most commonly used term for the controversial process of coal seam gas mining. Arthur Stevens has more from Melbourne. Lesson one, load your gun, drill the land till kingdom come. Doc Neeson of Australia's iconic The Angels is among many local stars who feature on No Fracking Way, a song that musically could be described as Sayers' first Australian pub rock anthem. Sayer says the song is designed to support the Lock the Gate Alliance in its opposition to coal seam gas mining, commonly known as fracking. Sayer says the damage fracking is causing to the landscape, environment, wildlife, livestock, flora and fauna and humans is highly evident in Australia and all around the world. I'm Arthur Stevens, Melbourne. And that is the end of the world. We certainly thank everyone who has supported the program over the past two years. The many broadcasters, especially those in developing nations, which have accounted for the highest listenership and the greatest feedback. To the many people who consistently download the podcast, thanks to you too. The downloads have increased significantly over the past four months, and we did consider the program to continue in a download format only, but alas, that was an idea that couldn't be viably sustained in reality. Personally, it will be disappointing not to be able to bring you stories that are often overlooked by mainstream media every week, but I certainly hope to be heard locally or internationally in some form at some time in the future. So for now, on behalf of the entire team, which has pretty much remained unchanged over the duration of the program, thank you again for your support and for joining us each week. And may the new year present you with new opportunities and a bright outlook for the future. I'm Tim Stackpole. Goodbye. Goodbye.